All right, good morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 today. And as you can tell, my voice isn't 100%, so um, we're just going to, you pray for me and I'll, God will retroactively put those prayers back into this presentation online. (laughs) So uh, let me pray and get us started. Father, we just ask you to open the word to our hearts and help us to understand um, what motivated the Apostle Paul and what drove him, and may it be where our hearts are today as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So, here we are, still in lockdown mode, separated physically from each other. I was trying to think of somebody in the Bible that uh, was in a similar circumstance that might have have something to offer us, a word for us, and the Apostle Paul just immediately came to mind. You know that when he was put on trial in Jerusalem, he was kept in prison there for two years. Really, he was in legal limbo. Um, The governor, Felix, wouldn't really deal with him, and he was just kind of there. But then a new governor was appointed, Festus. And Paul came to him and appealed to him to be tried in Rome by Caesar. And that was his right as a citizen. So after two years in prison, he was sent off to Rome, which is a long journey. And then he had to wait a long time there. When he got there, he was put under house arrest. So he was in lockdown. In fact, the book of Acts ends with Paul there waiting for his trial. He had a guard. But that wasn't too terrible. It was probably the easiest of the several times he'd been imprisoned in the course of his ministry. And the book of Acts ends with these words. He stayed full two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Well, he was allowed visitors, In fact, he was allowed more than one visitor at a time. In fact, whole delegations of people came to him. So he had more freedom than we do right now in some ways, right? No social distancing. Um, His lockdown was actually a little better than ours in some ways. Of course, he could never get out to Walmart. He did something else as well. He wrote letters. And that's one of the reasons God had him in that circumstance, so he would take the time to write. So four of these letters we have in the New Testament that he wrote during this period, in fact, they're called the prison epistles, Um, though if he did write them from Rome, it seems quite certain he wasn't exactly in prison. Like Luke said, he was under uh, kind of a house arrest situation, guarded, but uh, he wasn't free, but he wasn't like in a dungeon somewhere. So Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians are the prison epistles, and Just for now, we're going to call them the sheltering-in-place epistles. And I thought we would look at them, uh, just one of them today, and that's Philippians, because that's the joyful one. Joy is actually a major theme of Paul in the book of Philippians. In fact, if you want to do something while you're in lockdown, you could take the book of Philippians this week and get a colored pencil or something to mark with, and just go through Philippians. It's a short book, only four chapters, and underline or circle every time the word joy or joyful or rejoice appears. And you'll see that that's a constant theme throughout this little epistle. And if we think about uh, where Paul is on lockdown in Rome, and he really hasn't had freedom at this point for three or four years, um, we should want to know how a man who's been through that and awaiting trial after years in custody could have such a joyful heart. So that's what we're going to look for today. You know, we can get um, testy about all this kind of stuff we're going through, and, um, you know, we can't do what we want to do, and uh, 
it's easy to get the blues or, or get antsy or grumble. I love grumbling myself. It's one of my personal favorite sins. But when you read Philippians, Paul seems very content, even happy. He's got genuine joy in his heart. So it's really worth exploring why. Probably the first thing to notice in Philippians that may explain his joy is how he looks at himself. So chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. So right away, we see here, just in the greeting, greetings matter, we see Paul's focus. We actually see his purpose in life. He's a servant. So off the bat, he's not going to be too upset about not having his own way because he set that aside a long time ago to serve somebody else. He doesn't serve himself. He doesn't live for himself. Too often we do that, and that's why we get agitated and upset easily and things like that, because fundamentally we're serving ourselves. But he is a servant. Actually, the word doulos means slave. He's a slave of Jesus Christ. And wherever Jesus has him, that's where he's going to be, and that's where he wants to be, in his master's service, where he wants him. If Jesus wants him in prison, he's going to accept that. Plenty of people uh, to witness to in prison, in chains, and he had the freedom to meet with visitors, and like we said, he wrote letters, so it was actually a good place for him to be. You know, when I think of a place of incredible suffering, indescribable suffering, really, my mind turns to uh, Corrie Ten Boom and her book, The Hiding Place. She and her whole family were sent to concentration camps during World War II by the Nazis for helping Jews, um, hiding them. And Corey and her sister Betsy went through several camps, but they ended up in Ravensbrück, which is a really horrible concentration camp near Berlin. Very unforgiving place, a brutal place. Even among the prisoners, they would turn on each other because they had so little. And um, her sister set an example of service to the Lord, no matter what their circumstances were. She had joy in her heart and love, despite what they were suffering. And Corey learned from her how to be a Christian in extremely difficult tight situations. You think it's bad being locked up with your kids 24 hours a day? Uh, Imagine being with just total strangers who are all starving and being worked to death, all crowded into a barracks, and showing the love of Christ in a situation like that. Corey would later write, she would say, the measure of a life, after all, is not its duration, but its donation. It really doesn't matter how long we live or how much we get our way in life. It's what we give ourselves to. That's the donation part. What do we give ourselves to? And for the Christian, our life is given to Jesus. It's just that simple. And that might include a path of suffering, even great suffering. But if we're donated to him, then we're at his disposal and what he determines is okay for us. I suppose Paul could have grumbled about three years off the mission field, confined, unable to shepherd the flocks he loved so much, unable to travel. But then, did he know that we would have his letter before us and reading it today, 2,000 years later? He couldn't have known. But that's why one of the reasons God had him locked up, so he'd have to write, and those letters would be preserved all these years. And that's where Jesus had Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Well, the rest of verse 1 is a typical greeting. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So he's writing to the whole church, the saints, he says, those called and set apart by God for his purposes, including the leadership, but not aimed at them or limited to them. But he talks about the overseers and deacons, but he's writing to the saints, to the whole church. So this is for everyone. And in verse 3, he starts by discussing them as he has them in his mind and in his heart and in his prayers. In verse 3, he says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So there's the first use in the epistle of the word joy. Where did Paul find joy in lockdown? Well, he thought about his fellow saints in Christ who were faithfully serving God freely out in the open in their own cities, and their own villages and towns, sharing the gospel, carrying on the mission work, planting churches. He wasn't jealous of their freedom. He was happy about their faith and their service to Christ where they are as he was serving Christ where he was. If a servant is focused on his service, he doesn't start comparing himself with others or think ill of them because they're doing well. He rejoices in the good things that God is doing in other people's lives. And he thinks, he thinks about it, and he gets a smile in his heart. And when he thinks about them, he's happy. It brings joy to him because God is working in their life and using them, and they're being faithful. Not all of a shepherd's uh, prayers for the saints are filled with joy. Sometimes prayers of God's shepherds are filled with tears because people have gone astray and they've chosen a path of sin, and it's really hard. But when Paul thinks about the Philippian church as a whole, it just fills him with joy, much the way your shepherds here at Acton Faith Bible Church feel about you. We are just so full of joy when we see you walking with the Lord and growing in Christ and hungering for his word and serving each other and taking care of each other. It's a joyful thing. So you should not think this is a joy that is limited to shepherds of the flock, we should all have that kind of joy. The sheep like a good flock too, right? Don't you like being in the midst of a, a good flock of people that love Christ and serve him and care about each other? No matter what's going on with you in terms of your circumstances, whether they're hard or burdensome or pleasant right now, you can look around you and say, you know, there are people here who love the Lord and it's a joy to be with them and in their presence. So you can say to yourself, there are people that I know that I can trust, put God first in their lives, and they will have my back whenever I need them. That is a cause of joy, and it's true. Look again at verse 5. Uh, Paul rejoices because he says of their participation in the gospel. Some translations say partnership in view of your partnership in the gospel. Now notice they had partnered with him in the gospel. Philippi was the first city in Europe to have a church after the great Macedonian call. When Paul came over into Europe, he stopped at one city, but he went right inland right away, and Philippi was where he planted the first Christian church. That's why in Greece, they, uh, Paul is the celebrated apostle there, just like in Turkey, John is the celebrated apostle there, because Paul brought the gospel to Europe. He was called by the Lord to do that. So they didn't just accept Christ in Philippi and join a church and sit on their hands. 
from the first day, he says, they partnered with him. They participated in the gospel work. From the very first day that the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe the things that the apostles were sharing with her along a riverbank when they went down there to preach to the people gathered down there on a certain morning, Ever since that first day, the Philippians were doers of God's word. They were full participants. Lydia hosted the church in her home. She was a financial supporter of the gospel mission um, as a a successful businesswoman. She partnered with them. She was a doer and a supporter, and the whole church became like that. So at this current stage in Paul's life, the under-arrest stage, the Philippians had sent him some resources, some finances, probably to keep him out of squalor. I mean, if you went to Rome under arrest and you were waiting trial before Caesar, they probably didn't put you in a nice house. You probably had to pay for that. Otherwise, you would be in a dungeon somewhere. But if somebody had resources, they could be under sort of a house arrest situation, and that's what Paul could do. And probably that was the Philippians' financial support that allowed him to do that in a simple way, so at least he wasn't in the worst situation he could be in. And... um, The whole second half, in fact, of Philippians chapter 4 actually is thanking them for their support in that way. So they partnered with him, even at this stage, while he's off the mission field, financially, though Philippi was very far away from Rome. But Paul knew he had their prayers. He knew he had their support. He knew that they loved loved him. Now, we should talk about this word partnership or participation a little bit more. It's the Greek word koinonia. If you go to a lot of churches, they have little classes or groups called the koinonia fellowship or the koinonia class or whatever. That's just a common Christian word, but that's the word that literally is translated fellowship often. So when you see, you think of fellowship, koinonia is actually that word. Now, preachers will often point out that fellowship in the Bible is not just hanging out. Hey, we went miniature golfing the other day and we had great fellowship. That's how modern Christians talk about it. If we get together with other Christians and we're just chitting and chatting and doing whatever, we call that fellowship. That's, that's how we use the word, but in the Bible, the word's a little bit richer than that. It's actually participating in the work of God. Not that you can't do God's work on a golf course, but um, especially a miniature golf course because um, people need to keep each other accountable in environments like that. When you miss a shot, I mean, it's really important to have somebody have your back. He gets it. Okay, so um, in the New Testament, fellowship is more purposeful, though, than that kind of just being together. It's a sharing in the work of the church, the gospel specifically. It's partnering together for the work of God. So fellowship, even over distance, means having one's fellow believers, one's partners in the work in your mind. That, that is fellowship. When you're thinking about those people that have partnered with you and joined with you in the gospel work, you're fellowshipping with them in your mind. That's what's going on there. So fellowship um, happens internally as well as relationally. And he remembers them, and he's thankful and joyful. And because prayer is such a big part of Paul's life and ministry, he says in verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. We'll come back to that prayer in a little bit. But we should talk about verse 6. It's one of the most well-known verses in Philippians. If you're an imperfect Christian, and aren't we all, these words are an enormous comfort. They're also just a little bit scary. Here's what he says. 
I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is joyful when he's writing about the Philippians because they're doing well, and he is confident that they're going to continue doing well. He's, he's praying with joy, he says in verse 4. So, and he's confident that God is going to continue to grow them up. God is in the perfecting business. You mean God wants me to be perfect? Yeah. Yeah, he wants you to be perfect. He really does. Well, I thought he just wanted to save me and then give me hugs and stroke my hair and everything like that and just take good care of me. No, that's not why he saved you. I mean, he will take care of you, but... He's got a lot more going on than that, and he actually saved you for a purpose. You're really not saved to just be you and stay the same. You know that, I hope, right? So you were saved for his purposes, and the greatest joy and privilege as a creature of God is to serve his purposes. Thinking that God saves us to do whatever we want it, that's just as crazy as the first two humans thinking God created them just to do whatever they want. That's not how it works. He's the God of all things. He's infinite. He rules over everything. He's the judge and arbiter of all things. Everything belongs to him, including us. So our first parents thinking that they could do whatever they wanted, that's what led to all the misery and ruin in the world. And it's so wrong to even have thoughts like that enter our minds. People doing what they want, apart from God's purposes and will, is the very source of evil in the world. And we are, by birth, a part of that fallen creation, but by the new birth, we're part of the new creation. So our purpose is to serve that and the purposes that God has in bringing redemption to mankind. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5? You can flip there real quick if you want to, but in verse 17 it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You are not the same person you were before you were saved. If you know Christ, you are not just the same person stamped, saved. That's not who you are. We are new and we are reconciled to God. There, there is no greater change for a human being to undergo than being under the wrath of God and then being changed into a child of God. It's not just a status change, it's a heart change internally as well. We were at enmity with God, but because of the new birth, we love Him. That's a completely different mode of being. It's a completely different way of living. That change is not just relational, it is internal. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 5. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry, the service of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin 
to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That him is Jesus Christ. So there it is. We are saved from the fallen world to become ambassadors of reconciliation, which is the great work of God in the world right now, reconciliation. We actually become righteous in God's eyes through Jesus. His death in our place for sin makes us righteous before the throne of God's justice. That's the good news, and we represent that good news in the kingdom of all who believe that good news to the world. Because that's what Jesus did in us, and that's what he's offering to everybody else. So our calling is literally to be an ambassador of Christ's kingdom. So, listen, <clears throat> there's a lot of room to pursue the interests and gifts that we're given and the talents that we've been given in life and to explore all kinds of things for our lives. Though some people are called to lay aside certain things, and other people are called to lay aside everything to serve Christ in very special circumstances. He does do that, call us that way. But most of us are ambassadors for the king just as we go about our normal lives. My wife's a school teacher. She's an ambassador for Christ in a school. If you're a world-class chef, uh, that's a very unique and unique part of the world, uh, an insular group of people. But if you're one of those people, you're an ambassador for Christ in that world. If you're in law enforcement, you're an ambassador for Christ there. If you're in the fire department, you're an ambassador for Christ there. If you're a welder on the top of a 50-story building, you won't be seeing me there um, with you, but you're an ambassador to a very unique and crazy group of people. You've got to be crazy to be up there like that. Somebody's got to do it. So if it's you, you're an ambassador for Christ there. Wherever you are, you're an ambassador for Christ in the circumstance where you are, in your job, in your relationships, in your joys, the pleasures you pursue, the things you like to do. God wants to reach all of those different groups in society, and he does it through us. So in all that we do, in all that we pursue, we do it as ambassadors of a Savior God who became sin for us. It's very important that ambassadors properly represent their country. You know, I know we pick ambassadors sometimes in our country for political reasons. Oh, this guy gave a lot of money to my campaign. I'll make him an ambassador to Luxembourg or something. But in reality, you want ambassadors to represent who we are as a people, right? Our country to have to be people of character and um, kindness and mercy and people that represent the strength and the goodness of our country. That's what an ambassador is supposed to do. It's very important. And we have to be proper ambassadors for our king, King Jesus. That's the most important thing is that we are right ambassadors for him. So he seeks to perfect us so that we will be the right ambassadors for him in this world because we represent him and because it's just right that we be perfected. That's another reason God perfects us. We should be perfect for him. Our whole purpose for existence should be to serve him. Anyone who claims allegiance to a holy king should make themselves holy. They should work on holiness as the true representation of what God has done in our life. That's God's will for you, perfection. Jesus said it as plainly as can be said, Matthew 5, 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Now, we're not going to be perfect until we exchange this flesh for a new glorified body. So there's a very real battle for all of us to wage against our sinful inclinations. Paul calls it the flesh. So don't pretend that's not a real battle. It is for every one of us. Sin is always there in us. Pride, vanity, rebellion, lust, greed, anger, Um, that is not eradicated out of us just because we have a new heart. The new heart recognizes that those things are evil. That's where the new heart comes in and says, this is horrible. These qualities in me are terrible. I need to fight them and overcome them. So that's what the new heart gives us a desire to do. So we still need to fight the flesh, but perfection is coming. It is coming on the day of Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says there in Philippians. When he comes, the battle will be over and righteousness and holiness will be our natural and fixed condition. I can't wait. It's going to be so cool. As natural as breathing, we'll be holy all the time, righteous all the time. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears... We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So God will finish his work in you. Well, I don't know if you remember, but you might be thinking, well, now, you know, that sounds really good, but a little while ago you said this might be scary. What's scary about God finishing his work in us? Well, what if you get stubborn? What if you start to cling to sin and you don't want to let go? What if you get kind of caught in a trap of your own doing and you follow a path that you know is not pleasing to Christ? What do you think an all-powerful, holy God might do to someone who claims his name yet refuses to be perfected, who, who clings to sin, who's a lousy ambassador? Well, will he fire me? No, Paul... Paul doesn't say God will fire you. It says, he says he will perfect you. That's the scary part. It'd be easy to get fired. Well, how might God perfect me if I'm rebelling against him or caught in a sin trap or not dealing with my sin? Well, he'll start with reminders, usually, from a, maybe a pastor or a godly friend or somebody in your family who will point these things out to you. Sometimes God uses... Remarkable divine appointments, those, those special ways that he speaks to us providentially in circumstances. Surprising reminders that just kind of hit you over the head and say, have you been paying attention to me? And if we don't heed those gentle reminders, is God going to drop us? No, he's going to perfect us. So stubborn people get what we might call mm, pressure pressure. Uh, I prefer the words corrective discipline to describe this pressure. He will perfect you, and that might mean you will feel the consequences of your bad behavior. And if your behavior doesn't have any direct consequences, God might invent consequences for you. Hebrews chapter 12 is really clear about this. In Hebrews 12 verse 5, my son, he says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Don't fall away. Don't collapse. Don't faint. 
For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now that word scourges is a pretty strong word. That's kind of a scary word. God can make things most unpleasant for us but he always acts in a way that it will be to our good, always. It's just what we need. He will act in different ways. Sometimes he'll bring shameful things to light, maybe make them public like he did with David. Our bodies might fall to illness. Don't look at me right now. It's happened to David as well, as he describes in one of his Psalms, uh, all the physical affliction he had after his sin with Bathsheba when he refused to repent. He felt it in his body. He was weighed down with illness and distress in his body. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 describes physical affliction to those who partake of the Lord's table unworthily. He talks about sickness, and he even says some have, have died from that. So it's not a little thing. Things we treasure might be taken away from us because we're not treasuring what we should, and God might remove other treasures to help us to refocus. If it is corrective discipline, you will probably know what he's doing and why. Um, He's not going to surprise you about that. You can make the connection yourself why certain things might be happening. Now, that does not mean that every bad thing that happens in life is corrective discipline from God. That's not always true at all. The world is a mess. God is sovereign, and he, being a good father, is more than willing to order our lives in a way that will perfect us to make us worthy ambassadors. But we may not have done anything wrong, but sometimes discipline is good. You know, an athlete isn't, it's not, uh, he's disciplining his body to achieve something. It doesn't have anything to do with punishing himself. He might even think of it as punishing himself sometimes, but that's, he doesn't deserve some kind of grief. He just makes himself ache and work hard and kill himself so he can win a gold medal. That's what he wants to do. So anything worthwhile pursuing usually requires some level of self-discipline. So sometimes God disciplines us or brings hurts in our life just to shape us in a certain way so that we can help other people. If you've suffered grief in your life, you can comfort those who are grieving. That's just one example. There's so many different ways that's true. Corey Tenboom's a good example. She spent years in concentration camps so she could bring the word of Christ to the whole world. And many people became saved through her ministry or were encouraged Um, and are still encouraged, even though she's long gone, um, by her suffering, by reading her books. There's all kinds of ways that God shapes us through suffering, not because we did something wrong, but because he wants to perfect us. So that's just part of what it happens to. So not all difficulty is divine corrective discipline. Some things are just designed for our growth in certain areas. Anything worthwhile requires some kind of discipline. So God's purpose, like any good parent's purpose is to bring the child to maturity. And that's exactly what God wants to do with you. So be sensitive about areas you might need to grow in and be open for his corrective discipline or just the way he shapes your life to to learn lessons that um, you can apply to the future. Okay, but regarding the Philippians, Paul isn't worried about them being correctively disciplined or anything like that. He's, He's thrilled. He has a very positive take 
they've always shown growth. They've always moved toward maturity. Now, I know some of the Philippians, I'm sure, stumbled and fell and all that like everybody else. But as a group, as a church, when he thinks about them, he's thinking positive. So verse 7, back in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, It is only right for me to feel this way about you all. What? That God will perfect them? Because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you have been partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul was not a cold, sterile man, was he? Um, I have you in my heart, he says. That's where they've been during all the years he's been in custody and locked up and not being able to be with them. He has them in his heart. They had this special place in Paul's affection. He loved them. Verse 3, he says, I remember you. I've got you in my mind. And he keeps them in verse 7 in his heart. He feels it very deeply. He's confident enough in the genuineness of their love for him that he calls God to bear witness of his love for them because he knows it's so true. So he's not embarrassed to say, God can tell you how much I love you, how much you're in my heart. He's, Paul's a pretty amazing man to have his level of sheer courage and determination to plant churches for years in the face of opposition and sometimes violent opposition, to be that tough and yet to be so tender-hearted towards his fellow saints shows how profoundly the grace of God had transformed him. Remember, he was a persecutor of the church himself before Christ rather intruded into his life in a rather pushy way and gave him a new heart. So love is, is really the fountain from which joy springs. And that's a key thought here. His joy is coming because of the love he has for them. When you're at the attention of your heart is off of yourself and on to other people, it's so much easier to find joy in life. A, a, a settled contentment with regard to yourself, that God will take care of you, that you're in his will, that he's doing his thing in your life, that sets you free from self-absorbed thinking when you truly love other people and they're in your heart. And you can think about them and you're praying for them and you're connecting with them. And Paul found ways to connect through messengers. And um, we have a little thing called messenger. He had people running back and forth to these other churches, taking weeks and weeks on the road to send messages. And he wrote letters and he had people come and visit him from these other churches. He mentions Epaphroditus in the letter to the Philippians. That was one such messenger. So he couldn't go on Facebook and click messenger, but he could send Epaphroditus to talk to people and have him come back and see him or send Timothy off to this group or Titus off to this group. They had messenger. So we are in God's hands as we follow him, and we are free by that, knowing that we're in his hands, to extend his love and our love to other people. Everybody, everybody. Everybody, everybody beyond us, believers and unbelievers alike. Isn't that how Jesus actually lived his life? Um, we love, as a Christian, we love friend and foe alike, uh, but especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we can love everybody because we're in God's hands, and we know that he's got our lives. 
as Christ is our, our model for how to conduct our lives, and as he indwells us to shape our hearts to be like his, then our, our personal concerns, our concerns about ourselves, they sort of fade away. They're not at the first place in our heart. That's not the first thing we think about every day. We start thinking about other people every day. And that's what Paul was thinking about. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about them and all the other Christians he knew. And he's praying for them with joy in his heart because that joy is a fellowship and their participation in his ministry is a fellowship. That's how your shepherds at Act in Faith feel right now about you. We've got this same love and this incredible desire to see you, and we can't, so we're connecting every way we can, but it's that same thing, and that's where our joy comes from. We ourselves, we're just not that important. Uh, We are servants of Christ. Every Christian needs to think that way. I'm a servant of Christ after all. That's all I really am. And he can do with me as he wishes, and that's okay. When people look at us, they should see the qualities of the kingdom of Christ, love and humility and service and contentment and joy. And I know we're not all there. I am not all there. I, I'm not, I don't even know how far I am there. I don't, I don't even want to think about that very much. But that should be the direction of our maturity in Christ, to get there, to, to be perfecting ourselves through Christ and in by the power of the Holy Spirit and moving forward in our Christian life and not focusing so much on ourselves, but focusing on other people. That doesn't happen automatically. It's true when you're born, you just start to grow if somebody feeds you and you grow up to adulthood eventually, but you don't grow as a person unless you're shaped and cultivated and disciplined um, by others and and learning and growing and disciplining yourself to grow and mature as a human being. So when you're a baby Christian, when you're newborn, you have this new heart, it's it's new. It, it needs to learn and grow and be cultivated and brought in a certain direction. And that happens through the Word of God and through godly associations and self-reflection and practicing all these qualities we've talked about, mortifying the flesh. I love the word mortify. It means to kill, killing our flesh, putting aside the old man and being renewed in Christ Jesus and living for each other. That's what we have to do. We have to practice our faith. In fact, the, the perfect model to you for you to follow in doing that is the prayer that follows in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. I'm just going to read it because we're kind of out of time today. But um, we'll come back and look at it in the future. Verse 9. This I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's the Christian life in three verses in one prayer. Let's pray. Our great Father, how your love for us sets us free, free to love other people. We are so secure in your love as you continue and will continue to shape and mold us to be more like Jesus. 
we are physically apart from each other right now, more than we want to be, more than we wish to be, but let us keep each other in our minds, in our hearts, and in our prayers, just like Paul. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. God bless you. It's Easter Sunday next Sunday. Be with us. And again, there'll be a special Easter presentation as well at 9 a.m. So, and we'll probably have our time at 10 or 10.30, something like that. We'll let you all know. Keep paying attention to your emails. Be praying for each other. And we hope to see you soon. God bless. Bye-bye.